<laughs> Some people, I don't know if they've forgiven us for that still. <laughs> it was good food, though. We made good food. <laughs> and oh, and the, uh, the, the wit on the fence, the, the zoo thing. So that was actually, you know, that was the first chink in your memory. So some of that was the media narrative. What actually happened is I just walked down with him to the zoo because we lived right next to it and took a picture because he was just on the bars playing and sent it to Lauren. And she sent it to her mom who posted it on Facebook who somebody picked up and put a political caption under. And I woke up to him on the front page of the Atlantic the next morning and I was like, what the heck happened? <laughs> like the dude was just playing on the bars. Like we were not trying to go see the monkeys, <laughs> but it was the perfect picture for everyone to fight over and everyone to have their narrative over. It was Actually, an amazing um, expose into how social media, you know, twists pictures. Sometimes inadvertently, you just don't know what's going on. <laughs> All right. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Let's get started here. Um, on November 20th of 2015, I woke up at 6 a.m. because I got a phone call from a friend, and uh, he was crying on the other line. And he said, pray for Will. And he went on um, to tell me, I learned that morning, that my, our dear friend Will was trapped in a hotel room in Mali and that terrorists had overtaken the hotel and they were going um, through the hallways, taking hostages and now trying to get into rooms. You might remember this was the uh, 2015 Bamako hotel attack. And um, I walked down the stairs that morning um, and Will's internet in his room had stayed on. So he was able to actually give us updates. This is how we knew what was happening in real time. And uh, I walked down the stairs that morning, and I remember just laying face down on my living room floor, um, pleading for the life of my friend. And uh, at that time, there were many friends across the city doing the exact same thing, and even um, many who had gone to his parents' house to pray with them. And we would later learn, piecing all the details together, that at that time that we were on our knees and on our faces, uh, Will was also on his knees. He had built a barricade against the door, and he was literally on his knees pushing a shoulder into it as he felt evil try the door and push back. Um, praise God, when the door finally did open, it was to a burly Frenchman who was part of the UN Special Ops Rescue. And he told Will, take my hand, do not let go. And they walked out of that hotel, and Will is safe. Um, I start with this sobering but real-life story because I, I want to, with apologies, the sorry, not sorry. It's not going to get lighthearted tonight. Um, I start with this sobering but real-life story because I want to dive into two sobering but real-life truths that are shown in the intersection of this story, and that is the power of friendship in the face of evil. Two topics that I don't know that are often combined, the idea of friendship in this face of evil and spiritual warfare and all the difficulty that it is to live in the world. Um, but I actually think they're deeply related, and I think they're both a little underemphasized, at least in the spirituality that I'm familiar with in the Western world. I think in part probably because in, in our, you know, post-enlightenment rational Western world, we're, we're a little uncomfortable, not just with the word evil, but with the idea of spiritual warfare, that, that we live in a, a world at war. Um, and I think we're also just... Uh, slightly unused to the idea in our individualistic culture of the idea of our deep-seated need for other people outside of ourselves. So I think these two things actually go together really well, and they, and they lead in to the habits that I want to talk to you about. 
um, at the end here, which are moving out of absence. And my claim tonight is going to be that in the spiritual warfare of our world, what happens is we get drawn in and drawn alone. And in order to fight that very real battle, we need others and we need to be pushing out towards them. So here's how I want to go about it. Um, first, I want to talk to you about this idea. We're a little low on the screen, but I think you can see it, um, of covenant friendship. And what this idea of spiritual or covenant friendship means. And, and then I want to move into what, what do I mean when I say that there, there's a spiritual war going on in this stuff. And I want to talk about the spiritual warfare of absence in our modern age. And, you know, I'll tell you the end before we get there. I'm, I'm going to say that the culture of absence, the culture of withdrawing, the culture of looking in is not just a technology phenomenon. It is. Um, it's not just a product of an individualistic age. It is. It's also a, a fierce spiritual battle that we would do well to recognize. And then third, um, so I want to go to, well, then what would we do about it and give you two habits, two more habits of the common rule to press into presence. Um, so let's talk about covenant friendship. A couple falls ago, I am sitting in my living room with a dear friend and we're talking and we get some bad news via text message. And it, we find out that a mutual friend whom we respected, whom we actually went to college with, looked his life Life looked a lot like ours, married with kids. We found out that actually um, he had been found to be addicted to prescription drugs so badly that he was starting to steal them from other people's houses. And what was interesting about that night to me um, is, is that we talked about this. The question between me and my friend in the room was not like, how did this happen? You know, he's, it seems like one of us. The question was actually, is there anything you're not telling me? Is, have we disclosed everything to each other, lest we, you know, harbor some secret. Um, and that night, that question was asked, and it was answered. And, and we both said no. And uh, it was an incredible moment, and I start there because I think this question is a signpost of covenant friendship. The idea of, do you have full disclosure on my life? Are there any secrets that you have? Not as a prying, but just, have you revealed the deepest part of yourself to me? I think it's a signpost of covenant friendship, because it's the kind of question that can only be asked in a certain type of relationship. And that's the kind of relationship that commits to real and safe vulnerability across time. And what I want to claim about covenant friendship is that this kind of relationship that truly commits to safe vulnerability across time, these kind of relationships will make or break your life. Um, with them, you will thrive. And without them, some real part of you um, will die and wither. Uh, and just to define terms for a second. So what I mean um, by covenant friendship and friendship is not necessarily community. Um, we're called to be in community. I'm just not talking about something that broad. We're, we, you know, we are the spiritual household of God. So there is a, there's an aspect, you can talk about community for a church, a community in the body of Christ worldwide. I'm just not, I'm not going there. What I'm talking about is something much smaller, something you can't do with everybody, but that you ought to be doing with at least somebody or some people. I think this kind of spiritual friendship is built out of the same stuff of the household of God, but it might be kind of like the, the rafters or the studs, the uniquely supportive of the whole. And I'm going to get to some biblical backing for this, but let me first tell you how I even got thinking about this in the first place. So I told you my story earlier um, this morning. If, if you were here, if you were watching kids, God bless you. Um, the recap is I used to be a missionary in China, and I felt God calling me back to be a missionary to law and business. And what's interesting about that time in my life is I felt God call me to China, 
And then I felt him call me back. And this is the, like two times in my life, literally, no others, where I really felt the Lord being really clear about what I should do with my life. And I feel lucky to even get two. You know, most of, most of us just live in this, I don't know what to do. What should I do? So because I felt called um, to be a missionary to law and business, I, I thought, I kind of expected that I would end up, you know, doing as best as I can in law school and then going to the highfalutin best law firm that I could find, probably in New York City, maybe back in Shanghai, and sort of carrying out my calling at the highest echelon of the career level. Um, and, and indeed, some of those opportunities were actually really open to me at the end of law school. But something happened during law school. I think part of it was having kids. I think part of it was being in a great community here at Grace Marion Hill. Part of it was that all my dear friends and family were moving to Richmond at the time. And I started to wrestle with a question. Here's the question. Why is it so normal to move for your job, but so abnormal to move for your friends? Um, it's, it's not totally unheard of, but it's just, it's kind of countercultural. It's very normal to be like, I got the job, so I'm going there. Um, but it's kind of weird to be like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but my friend lives there, so I'm going to go live there, and then I'll find a job. Um, and uh, so I started wrestling with this at the time, and it led me to an even deeper kind of question, and that is that in the idea of friendship, who, who are we? What kind of beings are we? And that was the answer that could only be found in Scripture. And in the Bible, you, you actually see this wonderful unfolding of a theme of friendship. So, of course, you know, if you open the Bible, right, to page one, you find that we are created in the image of a triune God. So everything in the universe, including men and women, are, are born out of a fellowship, which is kind of an incredible fact. I mean, you could think of it in the universe as that everything longs for right relationship because everything was made for, from a right relationship. Um, how much more, us being made in the image of God, are we meant to be in deeply knit type friendship fellowship? I mean, you see this um, in Adam, right? Being lonely in the Garden of Eden with God, He's with God and he's lonely. And, and the, way, the reason I put it that way is because, you know, God's creating all this stuff. He creates penguins and he says, good. You know, he creates the northern lights and he says, good. He creates the Amazon rivers and he says, good. But then when he gets to Adam, um, he says, it's not good. And, and this is a startling thing. It's suddenly not good. All this good, not good that he's alone. Even though Adam's right there working with God, naming animals. So incredible fact that God made us not just to need him, but to need others. We're formed in the image of the Trinity. So when he, Adam sees Eve, he breaks into song. Um, ode to women, yes. An ode to marriage, yes. But I also, I also think just an ode to the friendship that comes with another human being being there. So I, what, what I want you to take for this is that you don't understand who you are until you understand that you were made for deep, intimate relationship. You were made for friendship. And then this theme is borne out through the Bible. Um, you see it in the characters in the Old Testament. I think probably David and Jonathan are a highlight of friendship embodied. You see it um, in Ecclesiastes, talking about a cord of three strands is not easily broken. You see it in the apostles' relationships. But then, of course, it finds its archetype in the friend of Jesus, um, who has these incredible words in John 15. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, which, of course, Jesus is about to do. And then he goes on to say, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. I'm going to get in a minute as we talk about the habits into more how Jesus is the archetype of, of friendships. But just, I love how right there in that passage, Jesus shows that 
two of the main ingredients of friendship are this vulnerability of sacrifice. You're willing to give up for another. And then this vulnerability of full disclosure. That he's, everything he's gotten from the Father, he's given over to us. You're my friend because I have disclosed everything to you. Um, and so as I thought about, oh, this is who I am. You know, this is who I was made to be. I'm not going to fully glorify God unless I'm in deep and meaningful relationships called friendships. Um, this, was a, this was a career changer. This is a game changer for me. It, it actually was the reason that we, we thought, Lauren and I wrestled with it and thought, I don't think we can let career be the sole compass of our geography. And we decided through much hand-wringing, it was not an easy decision, we decided at that time to move to Richmond um, to where all these lifelong friends were living and these, my, all my family was living. And actually at the time, as I told you this morning, Lauren was pregnant with our second son named Asher, the one born on the day I was take, supposed to take my last final. Um, so we were thinking about this all the, at the time, and so we ended up naming him Asher Stephen Matthew Early. Asher means the blessing or the happiness of God. Stephen and Matt are two of my best friends. Also, Lauren's brother's named Stephen and a close family friend is named Matt. And so he was named for this epiphany, this season, you know, it wasn't a moment, but this season of realization that the happiness of God is found in friends who are like family and family who are like friends. Um, and before I move on to how does this relate to the spiritual warfare of absence, I just want to drill down for you for a second. This is why you feel like you do. Okay, this is why when you are lonely, you rightly feel deep, deep-seated pain because you weren't made to be like that. And I want to acknowledge that. I mean, you know, not everybody has this all the time and every moment, but you are right to long for it. And then that pain that you feel is worth wrestling with God and praying over and searching out and looking for friends. And, and you are right to feel the joy that you do when you're in great relationship with friends and in great relationship with your small groups and your neighborhood groups. You were made for that. You and I were made for that. And that's not ancillary to the way we glorify God. We, when we become more like Christ, we're necessarily going to look more like a friend, more soft, more vulnerable, more exposed, actually more weak. You can do me harm because you know everything, but because of that, more strong, more tightly knit, more together. Um, so we should be becoming like this as, as we go. Um, the story that I started with a couple minutes ago that question being passed around the room with me and my good friend, is there anything you haven't told me? Next night, as it turns out, there was a knock on my door. And who knocks anymore, right? Like, I always get a text message, hey, you home? You know, <laughs> um, I don't know if you guys knock, but like, I think it's kind of almost antiquated now. So I was so surprised that somebody showed up my door and I answered the door and it was him. And I said, hey, what's, what's going on? And he's like, you got time to talk? I was like, I do, of course. Um, and um, he told me, I, I was just with the guy that we learned was addicted to prescription drugs, and he, you know, he's struggling. He just, you know, he's not fully there. And I said, I bet. And he said, yeah, there's something else, though. Um, I saw myself in him. I said, what do you mean? And he said, I didn't tell you the whole truth last night. And I thought, this is brave. This is brave. A dear friend just came back to tell me that he didn't tell the truth. So however offended I was or however hurt I was, and I was both of those things, I was amazed that something, I think the Lord was about to do something. I said, tell me more. And he told me um, about a, a kind of a, a secret pattern of sin that he had been harboring. And it was a watershed moment in both of our lives. Here's why. For him, it was a watershed moment because he brought light into the darkness. He let the light of friendship in. And praise God. You, you know what changed? <laughs> that sin changed that night. It changed. 
Um, but it was a watershed for me moment in a more difficult way, and that was because I found myself just gut punch hit with the reality of the spiritual fight that we live in as human beings because it was a time where I was starting to learn that all these friends that I had, that we had worked so hard on our relationships and frankly worked so hard on our relationships with the Lord that we were not immune to the evil of the world, that we were not gonna be free from suffering. You know, and, and if you had taken me back 15 years to when we were forming these relationships in high school and college, if you had told me, you know, one of these guys is gonna look you in the eye and say, I don't think I can believe in Jesus anymore. I just couldn't have believed it. If you, if you had told me one of these guys is gonna look you in the eye and say, I've, I've been so stressed, I've started to go to the clubs and just take random people home. If you had told me that one of my dear friends is gonna look me in the eye and say, I'm not just alcoholic, I'm getting suicidal. I, I had no idea the suffering and the difficulty. I had no idea that I would be you know, medicating myself to sleep at the age of 29. And I think what happened to me in that season is a tough but important lesson, and that is that evil abounds. There is a spiritual war. Um, if you do not understand that there is an enemy and he wants to take every bit of love you have in your relational life with your spouse, with your friends, in your church community, and he wants to destroy it. If you don't understand that those are the stakes of the world that we live in, then you, I don't think you see reality for what it is. And then, and then you cannot, and we'll get here in a second, you can't see the power of, the, of Jesus for who he is, which is the better news. But, but just, just on that reality for a minute, you can recast the whole narrative of scripture that I just gave you on friendship and understand that it actually occurs in another narrative of, of warfare with evil. I mean, go back to that moment of Adam and Eve in the garden. What happens? You know, this is the quintessential spiritual warfare. The enemy, the serpent, pulls Eve off to the side, absent from relationship with God and Adam, and tells her lies about who she is and who God is off to the side, absent, and told lies about who you are and who God is. And then all the rest of the story, I mean, you probably know this, you read the Old Testament, the New Testament, you know, it's a fight. David and Jonathan, this great story of friendship, people are trying to kill David, remember in that story. Ecclesiastes, that beautiful verse about a quarter of three strands, you know what precedes it? An act of violence. It says it's, it's, it's easy for one man to overtake another, but if there are two men and then a quarter of three strands, it's, it's actually like an image of violence. Um, one of the apostles, Peter, you know, who, who models friendship amongst the disciples, you know, he goes on to write about this the enemy prowling like a lion. And of course, Jesus is crucified. I mean, this whole story, we're at war. And um, we would do well to understand that this is where we live and that friendships and community have something to do with it. Um, I think if you have an accurate understanding of the spiritual warfare of reality, then you need to understand yourself like my friend Will. You, you are on your knees and sin wants in. And you need people praying for you. You need people there with you. You need to be telling people what is happening so that they can pray for you. Because this is what God says to Cain, right? After the first murder in human history. He says, sin is crouching at your door. But, if you've ever read East of Eden by Steinbeck, you'll get a whole new color to this phrase, but thou mayest overcome it. Um, there's this note of redemption that, that you can overcome it. And, and one more caveat before we get to overcoming it. When you talk about spiritual warfare, um, you know, there's all kinds of directions you can take it. And 
you know, we would do well to open our eyes to a lot of realities that we play down in the West. But, but I will say, here is where I think we see it most prevalently in, in the Western world. Here's the battle that you and I are most likely to fight. It's probably not a terrorist at your door. Um, it is exactly what Eve encountered, and that is the enemy wants you off to the side, absent from relationship, looking inward so he can tell you stories about who you are and who God is, so much so that that voice sounds like your own, all right? This has been a revelation for me recently because I, I battle with this, I confess, tremendously. Um, you know those, those voices in your head? And I'm not talking about schizophrenia. I'm not talking about audible noises. I'm talking about you and me, regular people, those narratives in your head that go like this. It's because you're ugly. You've always been ugly. It's because you're fat. You've always been fat. It's, you just never try as hard as other people. Or be, people just don't like you because you're like that. Or that thing that somebody did to you that's never going to go away. He's never going to change. She's always going to be like this. This is just how it goes for you. Those voices that you hear so often, the tape reels in your mind of your own shame, your own disappointment, that you hear so often that you actually think, and I confess, like, this is a lot of my life, I actually think it's my truest self speaking. Like, at the end of the day, yeah, I, I'm just, I'm going to implode. That thing that happened to me, it's going to happen again. It's going to get me this time. At the, at the end of the day, I, I'm just, you know, I'm just not going to make it. I'm not, my friends won't be there for me. These, these things that I worry about. And I think, I actually think in my head, like, yeah. It's, I think it's right. It's wrong. It's a lie. That is the serpent pulling you aside and telling you lies about who you are. You know who you are. You're a redeemed child of the king. You're a son and daughter of the king, of the ultimate friend who made himself so vulnerable that he came down to earth so that he could die for us and call us friends, and moreover, so that he could break the back of evil in the resurrection so that no spiritual authority would ever have power over you or me or any of this world. He is going to redeem it all. And this is, I mean, this is a real fight, but there is nothing to be afraid of. This is a real battle, but there is nothing to be fearful of. There is no lie that the words of Jesus are not truer than. The words of Jesus are so true that they will knock out any lie in your head. And we need to be in relationships and friendships that tell them to each other. And there is no darkness that the brightness of Christ's dawn will not shut out. It always wins. And there is no battle that Christ is not strong enough to fight. But to, to get there, you know, we need to be the kind of people who say, yeah, this is a fight. And the king is on my side. And here are my brothers and sisters. Let us go. Let us go into the storm and find each other and tell each other the truth. Um, th this is the beauty. This is what's at stake. And I just want to note that the commonality of all the things that I ran through earlier with my friends, that one who said, I don't know if I can believe in Jesus anymore, that one who said, I'm going to the clubs, that one who said, I'm an alcoholic, that one who came to my door, the guy with prescription drugs. You know what the commonality of all these are? How do I know them? They were confessed. You know what's true about every single one of those now? That man walks with Jesus. That man is sober. That man has broken the addiction. That man is not, hallelujah. They, 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 these things can, we can defeat these things through the power of Jesus. And it begins with bringing them to the light. This is why the light imagery, we're about to go to Advent. I love that season because the light of Christ shines in our darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. So I want to talk about 
two habits with you um, as ways to take this countercultural fight for presence in a world of absence, fight for community in a world of individualism, and make it normal, okay? So we're going to go just through two habits tonight so that we don't have to hurry through them. And the first one I want to talk to you about is um, daily habit, little smartphone there in the middle. It's the daily habit of turning your phone off for an hour every day. You might rightly say, what the heck does this have to do with friendship and spiritual warfare? Let me tell you. Um, you, if, you got, if you're going to understand why you might even consider making a rhythm out of turning your phone off for an hour every day, you've got to understand the, the, that presence is at the heart of all things, right? In the story of the Bible that we just went through, we're created to be present with God and the other humans in the, in the Garden of Eden, right? And what happens as soon as sin enters the world? People start hiding. People start... Um, looking away from God, being like, where is he? We start hiding from each other. We start hiding from God. Ultimately, sin gets us banished out of God's presence in the garden. But what's the whole story of the Old Testament? It's a story of an amazing, loving God who tracks his people down, who comes after them in these pillars of smoke and fire, in these tents and tabernacles. And what are all these things? They're manifestations of God's presence. And then, of course, in Emmanuel, God with us, the Holy Spirit, God's deposit of presence with us. And in the words of Revelation, we know that we're headed towards a kingdom where we will be with God and we will be his people. So this whole thing is about presence. This is our spiritual DNA. This is why you can't help the poor without being with the poor. This is why solitary confinement tortures the image of God because we're meant to be with people. Um, this is why you can't carry out a meaningful, full, lifelong relationship mediated by just technology because we're meant to be with people. But how often is it now a particular challenge for our modern age that we are around each other, but because of our devices, we are not actually present with each other? And what I want to say is that they're actually, it's not just our attention. That's a big thing. It's not just our productivity. That's a big thing. It is our spiritual DNA that is at risk when we live lives of absence caused by screen addictions. Um, now, so this started for me you know, on not such a deep note. It started for me just because I got four boys at home now. And even when I only had two or three, when I come in the door at the end of the day, I usually have a gym bag and a briefcase. I got to put them both down because I'm about to be attacked. You know, four out of five days of the week. Like recently, there's a lightsaber battle. Like sometimes they put on costumes, but somebody's going to hit me. And if I got my phone, you know, in my face, I'm going to get hurt. They're not going to get hurt. I'm going to get hurt. But you feel the consequences at home. Play is interrupted. Of course, it's hard to have a conversation with your spouse when you've already got your phone in your face. So, you know, I started noticing these rhythms of disruption at home, and it was because of my job, but also because these things have a thousand people on the other side of the screen programming, programming them to keep your attention, right? And I started to think, you know, I, I should really do something about this. Now, I just want to acknowledge, this is not novel, all right? I'm sure all of you realize, huh, sticky moment we live in. Like, these are hard you know, it, it, you can't get on the Atlantic or the New York Times without reading some article about the problem of screens. So I'm not suggesting there's anything novel here. I'm just saying that if, if you want to do anything about it, you can't wish it away. You need a counterformative habit, right? Because remember, we talked about this morning, your head's going this way, but your habit's going this way. Your heart is going to go that way. Um, th there's a great book called um, Irresistible by Adam Alter. Listen to this subtitle. Writer to writer, I'm like amazed by this. The rise of addictive technology in the business of keeping us hooked. That's, that's a seller. That's a good subtitle. 
Um, he talks, in the book, he talks about a phenomenon called stopping mechanisms, which is a term psychologists use as something that interrupts an addictive pattern of behavior. Um, and in a po podcast with Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Alter says that when it comes to the phone, one of the most helpful stopping mechanisms is actually just to have regular off periods. So I was reading about this and learning about this, so I decided about two, year two or three into my job at McGuire Woods, I can't remember, I was, gonna, I was just going to try it. And I'm terrified, right? Because I'm a, I'm a big firm M&A lawyer. Like, somebody's going to need me, and I'm not going to be there. Um, but I said, you know, I just, I got to work on presence around the household. So I'm, from 7 to 8 p.m. every night, I'm going to turn it off and just be with my family. Uh, the most amazing thing happened. I became present again at home. Most amazing thing didn't happen. No one cared. <laughs> Um, I don't even think anybody noticed, which, which really, you know, like we were talking about with Sabbath, kind of reoriented my idea of importance around the office. Um, as I found out, I wasn't as important as I thought I was. And that was a helpful lesson in and of itself. But go back to what we talked about this morning with the idea of the trellis and keystone habits. What this has blossomed into is something much more important. And I still do this every day. I get home. I make one last check to make sure things are okay with my clients and everything, and I turn it off, and I usually put it in my top dresser drawer, because a, a study actually from my alma mater, UVA, showed that even a phone off and on the table reduces participants' satisfaction in the conversation at the table. Fascinating how, how our brains work. So I typically turn it off and put it in a drawer for an hour. Um, but it's, what, what's, what's it blossomed into is just all kinds of rhythms of presence, Rather, it's just a new outlook on the world of, oh, these things are trying to get my attention, but these people need my attention. There's ministry. There's all kinds of wonderful things to do here. Now, I actually I have wonderful text chains with my friends and family that keep me updated. There are so many redemptive uses of technology. Um, like, I work on technology all day, y'all. I'm not a Luddite. But I'm saying if we don't have rhythms of presence, then we're going to become a people of absence. And when you're navel-gazing at the screen all day, the voices, the liturgies, the narratives of who you are, they're powerful. And we need that powerful antidote of a brother or sister's face in front of us, telling us who we really are, using scripture to tell us who we really are, praying with us about who we really are. That is the life, that is the lifeblood of being in a community, of being in friendship. Um, and, and before I go into the next habit, I want to say it's also, it's meaningful for you in your friendship with God, too. Um, Pascal once said that all of, how do you put it, all of humanity's problems stem from our inability to sit quietly alone in a room. And I remember reading that one time and being um, afraid of it because it was so right. You know, when you sit down to talk to God, when you sit down to pray, don't you find your mind spinning, right? Because we're not used to this. And these habits of presence change our ability to pray, to concentrate, to commune with the Lord. Um, so there's a lot at stake there for both of them. Now, uh, the second habit I want to talk to you about, just to push even more into this idea of community and, and presence, is on the outer ring here, it's a weekly habit of an hour of conversation with a friend every week. All right, so we've already been through the theology here. Like, we need friends. We're built for friendship. We glorify God just by doing friendship. Now, now apply it to our moment. This has been true across human history. Now apply it to our moment. How much more do we need a friend who really knows us thoroughly, 
when we could just swipe left for privacy anytime we want. When you could just get a secret online account and dabble here and there all you want. When you can just be alone all day with the voices and the voices and the voices, how much more do we need somebody who knows us thoroughly, who sticks around, you know, who we have that safe vulnerability with, who knows us across time and says, I still love you. I still love you. I know it all and I'm sticking around anyway. Here is why this this practice is so important. Because that's the gospel, y'all. That's what Jesus does for us. He knows how broken you are. And what did he do? He came down and said, I'm not leaving. Grab my hand. We're getting out of here. You're safe with me. That's, that's what he does. When we do this together, we embody the gospel to one another. There is gospel power in those kind of relationships. And that's why we need to make it a habit. Um, you might not know that we're actually living in a scary moment right now. Um, for the past three years in America, the life, average life expectancy of, human, of Americans has actually declined. And the last time that happened, it was in the 60s, and then there was a flu epidemic to blame it on. Now, all the statistical upticks that are bringing down the average are preventable deaths. They're suicides, they're opioid abuses, they're drug and alcohol-related deaths. And sociologists kind of scrambling to figure this out, but making some credible arguments that what we're experiencing is an epidemic of loneliness, and that this actually has life and death consequences. I was, I was shocked recently to read, this is this year, I read a, a peer-reviewed metadata survey in a respectable medical journal that said that chronic loneliness actually reduces your life expectancy to the tune of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Can you believe that? I had no idea. Um, so, you know, when I said at the beginning, friendship will make or break your life, I'm serious, but it's body and soul. Because we need these kind of gospel relationships to fight the good fight and to come out of ourselves, uh, We need to experience the gospel in them. The, so the way that this looks for me is that I, me and my friend Steve, that I told you about this morning, we have a standing get-together. At times it's been a standing coffee. At times it's been a standing evening gathering. But just once a week and with newborns in the house now, we don't hit it. <laughs> but this is the beauty of a habit. It's the default you fall back to. You go through these seasons and these times that you're off your rhythm, but the rhythm is ingrained as a habit. And the rhythm for Steve and I is we get together and we talk about career, we talk about baseball, we talk about the kids, but at some point we tell our secrets. And I am so thankful that the Lord has had the grace in my life that I'm standing in front of you today as a man without secrets. Y'all don't know him, but someone does. And that saves my life every day. You know, when I had a horrible night's sleep last night and coming down with a cold and was like, man, I got to give three talks this weekend. You know, I texted this morning was my friend Steve and Matt. And I said, can y'all pray for me? Because that's what we do. Whether we're in a terrorist attack hotel in Mali or whether we had a bad night's sleep or whether it's just a normal day fighting the fight against the voices, you tell each other, you disclose yourself, you pray for each other. This changes everything. And the idea here of making it a habit, I mean, it's kind of like nothing revolutionary here, but, but, but wait, because what's the default in modern America? I'll tell you what it is. It's become busier, wealthier people who used to have friends. This is where we're headed. So it might be common wisdom that we need friendship. I'm talking about common practice now. How do we make it practice? How do we get into these rhythms? Um, and let me... Um, start to forecast tomorrow as, as I bring this to a close. 
Talking about personal habits this morning that sort of like affect, affect our life with God. Talking about communal habits now that start to push us into presence and friendships and community. What I want to start to suggest is that all this stuff, the end, the end of it is that gospel movement of now the taking it to the world. And I love the idea of friendships because this is how I think evangelism is happening, at least in the circles that I'm in and in our modern moment. Um, and, and this was an early on thing for me. So the friend Steve that I just mentioned, we, we became friends in high school when we bonded over things like skateboarding, the drum line, and youth group. And you can decide for yourself whether we were cool or not, but that's, that's the things we were bonding over. And um, a year into uh, the, uh, the, the burgeoning friendship that we had, this other guy um, joins the, the drum line. And he's two years younger than me, one year younger than Steve. And, and it's clear that he really wants to hang with us, right, the younger guy. And we like, we've, he's got the same taste in music. He likes skateboard. He's good at the drums. The only thing we didn't share in common was he didn't go to youth group. Um, and I'm going to truncate a, a beautiful and a dark story because, well, it's, it's personal. But what happened is that this third guy got close enough to us to see all this beauty of friendship. And we loved him and he loved us. And he also got close enough to see how messed up we were. And frankly, we hurt him bad at some moments. We hurt him real bad. And I think it was exactly the combination of those two things, how amazing the relationships were and how broken they were, that made him finally come to say, I can't make sense of this beauty and this brokenness without this Jesus that you guys talk about. And our friend Matt eventually became baptized. And my friends Steve and Matt were the ones that I texted this morning. My son, Asher, Stephen, Matthew, Early, that, that's his name. I, you know, the, the fire of friendship is contagious. And I think when we look out into an individualistic culture like a lonely wilderness, I want you to think about how do we build bonfires? That, that, that you know, all the lonely, they might, they might think we're weird. They do. <laughs> they might think we're crazy stuff, that we believe in stuff like spiritual warfare. We do. <laughs> but when they see that kind of deep relationship, that love, that is immediately recognizable. And there isn't anybody that doesn't look at that and say, I want some of that. And what is the church besides a body of broken believers that bind together as friends and look out and say, you're welcome to have some of this. You're welcome to come in. The open circle of friendship. This is the way that we not only fight the fight, that we not only disclose our secrets, but we also start to look out and say, how do we make friends of the world? Because God has made friends of us. And of course, he's the archetype, right? None of this matters except that there was a man named Jesus who came and befriended us. My friend Will, um, later we got together when he was safe and at home and had this beautiful moment where all our friends came together and prayed for him. And he told us this um, amazing little morsel to the story that we didn't know. Apparently there was a U.S. Marine roaming the hallways that morning. And uh, he had the names of Americans written on his arms and their room numbers and he was going through with his guns and finding each room, opening up, and with a, a black felt marker, just crossing them off one by one. And I thought that was so beautiful because we talked about this morning that there is a man with our names written on his hands. Our Jesus, he is the one that wins this battle. He is the friend that comes to find us. And my suggestion, my claim, my plea with you is that accept the covenant friendship of that man named Jesus, and then follow in him into the world and befriend the world in his love. Let me pray that that would be true of y'all.
Lord, thank you for Jesus who made friends of sinners. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your power. Thank you that in a world at war, we have nothing to fear because you love us and you are for us and you have given us each other. May we lean in to presence in a time of Advent. Lord, Lord, make us present to each other in small, daily, and big, weekly, in, in key conversations. Lord, I pray actually that if there, there are people tonight thinking, I, I need to tell this to my friend. Lord, would you give them the grace and the courage to tell it? Would you give us as friends the grace and the wisdom, the courage to hear it, to be soft, to be gentle, to be vulnerable, to learn to speak back the reinstating words of the gospel that you are loved, you are loved, you are loved. Or would you make us a people like that? And may we befriend the world in your love. Amen. Let's stand and sing a final song. How great thou art this evening. Thy hand.